I'm going to read from Romans 8, verses 18 to 25 for today's message. If you want to join with me on your device or in your Bible, Romans 8, 18 to 25, and I'm reading from the ESV. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed in us, to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Hey. I need to turn on my microphone. Let's try all that again. I was just checking out your lip-syncing reading abilities, just seeing where you're at maybe with that. Uh, this is the beauty of doing live stream. We don't get to do anything post-production. All right, well, here's what I was saying. I was saying that we have finished the book of Ecclesiastes, and uh, I was trying to think about what we should preach on now. Uh, we're, of course, still in this time of COVID. Uh, we're particularly uh, in, in kind of the middle stretch of it. Hopefully, who knows, it might be going on for a whole year. We don't know. But I wanted to focus on something that could really speak to our hearts as we continue continue on during this present crisis. So we're done Ecclesiastes. I thought, what should we preach on now? There are certain scriptures that the people of God always go to throughout all of history. They've been attracted to certain scriptures during difficult times. So think Psalm 23, of course, would be a big one. But perhaps, along with Psalm 23, perhaps the greatest of all the scriptures on how to face hardship and suffering is the last half of Romans chapter 8. The last half of Romans chapter 8 demonstrates how faith in Jesus Christ can enable you to endure and even to rise above literally the worst of all possible suffering. And I'm not even overstating that. Even non-Christian secular authors recognize that belief in Jesus Christ can give you this. Uh, there's a famous philosopher, a French philosopher named Luc Ferry, and uh, he's not a Christian at all, but he recently wrote a book where he is arguing that the, one of the primary reasons that Christianity really exploded during those first few centuries, what, what made it so attractive to the Roman Empire of its day and time, was its ability to handle suffering, what it offered people on how to handle suffering. So for instance, when the Christians were being uh, thrown to the lions, when they were burned at the stake, the Roman people were shocked and amazed by the fact that Christians would go to the stake singing. They would be rejoicing as they were going to their certain death. And so they were saying, how in the world do these people get this ability not just even to endure suffering, but even to somehow rise above the worst of all possible human suffering? Think of the Apostle Paul, the exact same thing. This man suffered. Five times he received the 39 lashes with the whip. 
Three times he was beaten with rods. He was often hungry. He was, he was, one time rocks were thrown at him so much that he fell unconscious and was dragged out of a city. He was in prison all the time. Paul knew what it meant to suffer. And yet Paul also somehow has this ability to endure through suffering and then even to rise above this suffering. And nowhere is this more clear than in the second half of Romans chapter 8. This entire chapter is about hardship and suffering, and yet it's shot through with a note of victory and a note of hope. It all builds really towards the end where you can say that Paul gives this giant shout, a shout where he says that Christians, those who have faith in Christ, not only conquer all hardship and suffering, they more than conquer all hardship and suffering. So this is why I want us to dig in together into the second half of Romans 8 because, listen, there is no greater need at this present time than to know how to endure, how to face, and how even to rise above hardship and suffering. So today I want to begin, and I want to begin just today looking at verse 18. That's it. Just verse 18. And here in verse 18, we discover that the key to being able to endure suffering, to be able to even rise above suffering, is to learn how to think about something. To think about something. Notice he begins verse 18 with this words, for I consider. That word consider, it means to think about something so much that you've come to a logical conclusion and that conclusion has given you a conviction. And so what Paul is saying here is that he has, he has thought through something. It has given him a great conviction. So here's the question. What is it that if we think about it deeply will give us a conviction which will enable us to not only endure but even to rise above all hardship and suffering? Answer? Time. Time. Paul has thought about time so deeply that he's come to a conclusion that fills him with conviction. Paul says that what we need is to have a correct view of time. In fact, it is a lack of understanding into time that causes us to fall into despair and into discouragement. When Christians, when hard things happen, we even begin to doubt God's love for us. And even sometimes coming to the place where we think maybe this whole Christian faith is all wrong. Maybe we've missed the whole boat. And what Paul is saying is, if that's where we go during hardship, it means we have not thought deeply enough about this issue of time. So here's the main point that I want to show you today. It's simply this. You can endure anything if you think correctly about time. And to that end then, I want to help us think by asking three questions. And I'm going to make us think today. This, this is the Apostle Paul. He's always a little heavy on the teaching end. But if you get the teaching, if you stick with the teaching, it will fill your heart with so much emotion and joy and hope. But you've got to think first. And Paul always makes us think. So here's the three questions I want us to ask about this verse today. First of all, what time is it right now? Second, is time even going anywhere? And then third, and most practically, how does a correct view of time enable us to endure the worst things in life? So, put your thinking caps on. Don't, in this sermon, leave for five minutes and come back. You might miss something really important. Let's think together, okay? So here's the first question that I want us to think deeply on. It's simply this. What time is it right now? 
Kids, you're all probably looking at the clock if you're still tuning in with us, but that's not exactly what I'm trying to get at here. Throughout this message, what I want to do is think about three different ways that people view time. Three different ways people view time and how each of these can help you or not help you deal with hardship and suffering. So in the first place, here's the first way people view time. Some people view time in a cyclical manner. That is the idea of reincarnation, that time is always, the future goes back into the past, and it's like we are on this giant wheel, that time is always going in this circle, and we are living from one life to the next, and you're always reincarnated as you go along. This, of course, comes uh, from Eastern religions like Hinduism and like Buddhism. So we are all doomed to be in this great wheel of time. We're all stuck in it. We want to be released from it, and there is some possibility of release but we're stuck inside of the wheel of time. So, on this view then, the reason why you suffer, listen to this, is because you made bad choices in a previous life. It's karma. So when you're suffering, whatever you're going through, the reason why you're going through it is because you made bad choices in a previous life, so you deserve the pain and the suffering that are coming into your life. So what time is it right now according to this view? According to the cyclical view, we are in one more cycle within the never-ending wheel of karma and reincarnation. That's what time it is right now if you hold to a cyclical view of time. Now, here's a second way that people view time. It's what we call a linear view of time. That is, it's on a line. It's not going in a circle. It moves from a beginning towards an end. And here what I want to speak about is a, sp- a particular way that people view linear time, and that is the modern secular view of time. So modern secular people think that this material universe is all that there is, that there is no God. And in this view, the universe had a beginning, And it is moving now moment by moment towards an end. And what is the end of all things? The end of all things, according to the modern secular view of time, is death. That you will die, the human race will die, the sun will die, every living thing in this universe will eventually die. So on this view then, there is no real reason for suffering. You're just You're suffering just because that's the way the universe is. It's the way that it was. It's the way that it is. It's the way that it always will be. That is what the view is. So what time is it right now according to this view? According to the modern secular view of linear time, we exist in a moment that is counting down to the death of all living things. Now, let's turn to the Christian view. This is the third view of time. Track with this. Keep your thinking caps on. Look at verse 18 in your scriptures and notice that Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of, notice, this present time. Paul wants to give us an understanding into time. Now, this present time is a technical term. It actually kind of refers to this present age. So he's not asking what time is it on the clock right now. He's talking about this present time as an era as an age, as a particular distinct point or a, or a period of time within a larger timeline. So Paul is going to go on, and we're going to see in a bit, to contrast this with a future time when Jesus returns. But we're not quite there yet at all. This present age that Paul is referring to includes all the things that we experience in this life, all the way up until the second coming of Jesus. And notice, he says this present age It's marked by suffering 
and by death. That's what this present time is marked by. So, the Bible also teaches a linear view of time, but here's the key difference. Listen to this carefully. It is a linear view of time, but there are distinct eras, separate ages along this linear view of time. That's the key distinction here. Paul is going to go on in this passage, we'll look at this next week, to reflect on Genesis 1 to 3. And there we learn, of course, that the universe had a beginning. God created the heavens and the earth, right? And I'll, I'll just call this the previous age. This is Genesis chapters 1 and 2. In this previous age, when Adam and Eve lived, there was no suffering for human beings. There was no death for human beings in this previous age. But of course, we know the story. During that previous age, Adam and Eve rebelled against their creator. And that previous age ended abruptly. It ended abruptly, ushering in what we now call this present age, which is marked by suffering and by death. And by suffering, Paul means all kinds of suffering. He means, yes, the global pandemic that we are facing right now. He means financial disasters, sin, sickness, and of course, death itself. So what time is it right now according to the Bible? Well, this is not a complete answer yet, but let's state what we have so far. According to the Christian view of linear time, we live in this present age that, unlike the previous age, is marked by suffering. All right, so that's a lot of thinking we've done already about time. We're not even getting to the point of hope yet. We're going to come there. But let's just pause right now because even with what we have so far, we have a tremendous understanding into all the sufferings and the hardships that we have in this life. Because let me, let me just put it in practical terms for you. When something difficult happens in a Christian's life, something difficult, let's say your wife gets cancer or, or somebody dies or you're light, you lose your job or something, here's the tendency. A Christian will often say, oh, why is this even happening to me? I mean, if I'm one of God's children, why would I have to suffer like this? And then, of course, on top of that, there are always loud voices from our culture that will say things like, the very existence of suffering in the world proves that Christianity is false. To complicate matters even further, there are supposed Christian leaders who will say, if you just have faith in Jesus, He will solve all your problems. If you just have faith, He will heal all your sicknesses. If you just have faith, He will even make you financially wealthy. You've got to have faith. So here's now what happens, though. Here's the great problem. Here's this Christian struggling already with the circumstances in your life. Maybe someone's got cancer you love or something like that. Or maybe you have cancer. You're struggling with that. And then piled on top of that now, you're doubting God's love. On top of that, you've got people who are saying maybe your whole Christian faith isn't true. So maybe you're even pondering this. Maybe the whole thing isn't true. And maybe it's just my lack of faith. And so you start beating yourself down. So on top of all of the other problems, you got these things heaped on top of it. But listen, what you learn in this single verse is that all of that is terribly wrong. Here we see that the Apostle Paul says the reason why you're getting so off track is because you have not thought deeply enough about time. Let me put it this way to you. Think carefully before you answer this. Does God promise that if you give your life to Jesus, if you have faith in Jesus, that he will solve all of your problems heal all of your sicknesses, and make you wealthy? 
Does he promise that? Yes, he does. Surprised by that? Oh, yes, he does. Absolutely. He promises. If you give your life to Jesus Christ, he will solve all your problems. He will heal all of your sicknesses, and he will make you wealthy beyond imagination. But just not yet. Oh, he promises it. But not quite yet. This is where we need to think about time. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, if you just give your life to Jesus Christ, right now he will solve all of your problems, heal all your sicknesses, and make you financially and great, give you great wealth. He doesn't say it's going to happen right now. He says it's going to happen, but you need to read God's clock. You need to know what time it is. You, you need to pay attention and think about time more deeply. The reason why Christians often get so shocked and so discouraged with their own sufferings is because they're not thinking about time correctly. And what we're learning from the Apostle Paul, as we saw in that diagram, is that we live right now in what he calls this present age. And this present age is marked by suffering for all people, including the children of God. So we must not be shocked. We must not doubt God's love that has nothing to do with it. We must not think that the whole Christian faith is nothing at all. And we certainly must never think that if we just had more faith, all these things would go away. No. Paul says, think about time. Read God's clock. You live in this present age, which is marked by suffering. Now, we got to keep thinking all the heart stuff's going to come, but we've got to think a little bit longer. Here's the second question I want to ponder. Is time going anywhere? Is it going anywhere? And that's a very important question. I want to look again at these three views and see what they say. They all agree that this present age involves suffering. They all agree on that. But the only way that we can ever have true hope is if somehow time is going somewhere and somehow the future is going to be better than this present age. That's the only way that we can have any hope. So let's think through each of these views of time again and see what hope that they offer to us. First of all, remember the cyclical view of time. Is there any hope in a cyclical view of time? Well, there is a glimmer of hope. There is a glimmer of hope for eventually, if you go through enough cycles of, of karma and reincarnation, you may eventually break out of the wheel of time and attain whatever it's going to be, nirvana, heaven, all these kind of ideas that come out of the Eastern religions. So there is a glimmer of hope, but there's not a lot of hope because, first of all, you must go through hundreds, thousands, maybe even millions of reincarnations. You must go through even millions of lifetimes filled with suffering before maybe you'll eventually get out of the wheel of time. But even then, you have no assurance that you will get out. For maybe you haven't lived this life very well, and you might start going back down the cycle of reincarnation because you've given bad karma and so maybe you're going to have to go on for another million cycles. Who really knows? I'll never forget uh, going to a Hindu uh, temple in my undergrad. That was for a, a, a world religions class. And, and we were standing there with all the, the Hindu idols behind the priest. And the priest was standing there. And he did a kind of a Q&A session with us. And my professor uh, put up his hand and he asked the priest a question. And, and he said to him, 
Okay, so you are a, a Brahmin, that is a, a caste, that is the highest level of caste within the Hindu religion. You're a Brahmin, you're a male, that's as high as you can get on the cycle of reincarnation, and you are a priest. You are a Brahmin, a male, and a priest, the highest you can get before breaking out of the cycle of reincarnation. And my professor said to him, do you have any assurance that you will break out and be free? And without even hesitating, the priest said, no, I have no assurance whatsoever. And he was just being honest because maybe he hasn't lived that great of a life and he will have to descend back down the cycle of reincarnation. So the cyclical view of time offers not a lot of hope, but it does offer a glimmer of hope. That cannot be said for the modern secular view of time. Where the cyclical view of time gives you a glimmer of hope, the modern secular view gives you no hope at all. Why? Because all of time is just counting down to your inevitable death. When bad things happen in your life, the best you can do is just try to make them a little bit better, try to improve your life, try to stay positive, but there is, at the end of the day, no hope at all, for time is marching you and every other living thing toward one final end, and that is total extinction. Then it is right here that the Christian view of time shines through, for here we begin to discover a true message of hope. There is hope because Christianity says time is not cyclical. It's not a circle of which you are trapped in, and it's not a, a line moving from a beginning point to an end point that ends in absolute death. Look at verse 18 again with me where Paul says that this present time is not going to last forever. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory, notice this, that is to be revealed to us, that is to be revealed to us. Notice that future tense in there, is to be. That's, that's, that's all a future tense. There's something coming in the future, Paul says, and he describes it as a glory that is to be revealed. So let's come back to that previous graphic that we had. There is a future age that is still to come, is what Paul is saying. In other words, this present age of suffering is not going to last forever. It is also going to abruptly end. In other words, the Christian view of time is that time is going somewhere. Time is not ticking down toward death as in the modern secular view, but rather time right now is ticking down to one great moment, to one great event that will end this present age of suffering and will launch an entire new future age where Paul says a glory will be revealed to us. This, of course, is the great story of the Bible. If you go back in the Bible, from the very beginning of the Bible's story, literally on the exact day when Adam and Eve rebelled against their creator and this previous age ended and we entered into this present age, God gave a message of hope. Right on that day, right there, his great message of hope is that one day he would send a man who would crush the head of the serpent, who would destroy evil in this world and make things right again. This was the great promise that he gave. And of course, this man is Jesus Christ. That God eventually sends Jesus into this present age and that his life, his death, and his resurrection are what secure this future age for us. They, they secure it, they guarantee it for us as we begin to move forward. 
So the second coming of Jesus now, which is this event, this is the event of all events. This is what every Christian looks forward to. This is the dominant note of the New Testament. We are all looking forward to the event of all events, which is the second coming of Jesus Christ. For Paul says that when that day happens, a glory is going to be revealed to us. Revealed. So, so maybe we could think of it like this. We're, we're all like people sitting in a dark theater. There's curtains closed in front of us. We don't know what's behind the curtain, but a day is coming when Jesus returns when suddenly God will take those curtains and he will pull them aside. And what we see will leave us utterly awestruck. When we see it, we're, we're just going to gasp. We're going to say, I just I can't believe it. I cannot believe that it's that glorious. We're going to turn to each other with tears in our eyes and just be saying, can you, can you believe this? And it's not even just, mark this, it's not even just something we're going to see from afar. It's something that we enter into. We will be in it. We will experience it. For Paul says that on that day, suddenly when Jesus returns, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, our bodies will be transformed into immortal resurrection bodies of power and strength and vigor. We will see Satan destroyed. We will see sin banished from God's creation. We'll see things like viruses destroyed and totally removed from God's earth. He will renew that earth. And we read that God himself will come to dwell with his people forever. And perhaps best of all, Revelation chapter 22 and verse 4 says that we will see his face. Glory. It's glory that is going to be revealed to us. So the cyclical view of time offers a glimmer of hope. The secular, modern secular view of time offers no hope at all. But the Christian view of time offers hope beyond our wildest imaginations. What is the Christian view of time? Time is linear. It moves from one moment to the next, but there are separate ages, distinct eras within the linear view of time. And the age that abruptly ended here ushered in the present age. And what we read is that this present age is also going to come to a very abrupt end. For Jesus Christ will suddenly appear, putting an end to this present time of suffering and revealing to us, ushering us into an eternal glory, something that will leave us awestruck, something that will fill us not just with hope, but that we will experience for all of eternity. This is the great hope of the future age. It's not marked by suffering. It's marked by glory. Now, that's a lot of thinking, isn't it? When you get into the Apostle Paul, there's lots of thinking. But let's really make this all very practical now for us. Let's come to ask one last question. How does a correct view of time enable us to endure the worst things in life? So we've thought about time. We're getting a correct view of time. Now, how does that enable us to be able to endure through anything? And the answer, of course, is in the sharp distinction between this present age and the age to come. Look again at verse 18. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, here's the phrase now, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So notice what Paul is doing. 
He is thinking. He's thinking about the sufferings of this present time. He's thinking about what's going to come in the future when Jesus returns. And as he thinks deeply about this, this, uh, this linear view of time and the distinction between the two age, he is filled, comes to just this huge conclusion. He says, I can't even compare. The glory that is to come is so great, you can't even compare it with all the suffering. Take all the sufferings of this world, the worst of it, just add it all up on the pile. It doesn't even compare with the glory, he says, that is to be revealed. So here's the basic principle that will enable you to endure anything. It's simply this, that the hope of a glorious future enables us to endure the difficulties of the present. Thinking about the future enables us to endure the present and even to rise above the present. I mean, just think about this on very simple levels. Right now, what is it that's enabling us to endure through this present crisis? It's the hope that there is a future, that one day we can travel and go on vacation, we can gather with people again. It's that hope that keeps us going. What if COVID-19 never ended and there was no hope? We'd feel very differently. But it is the hope of a future that keeps us enduring right now. Any woman who goes through childbirth has to experience tremendous pain. But as Paul's going to show us next week, it's the glory, it's the hope of holding that newborn child that is your own, that enables a woman to endure through such difficult times. In the same way, this is what enabled the martyrs to go to the flames singing. How do you sing when you're about to be burned at the stake? How do you sing when lions are being set on you? The only way you can do that is if you think there is something coming that is so great that it's not even going to compare to all that you're about to go through. And all through history, this is what has enabled Christians to endure and even to rise above their present sufferings. It's thinking about the hope that is to come. So, the reason why we often fall into despair, the reason why even as Christians we often question God's love for us, how could this happen to me when I'm one of his children? The reason why we even sometimes go, maybe this whole Christian thing isn't even true. Maybe it's all false because how could this kind of suffering be going on if God really exists and Jesus came into this world? Paul is saying to us, if we're thinking that way, it means we've not thought deeply enough about the sharp distinction between this present age of suffering and the future age of glory. He's saying you've forgotten it or you don't understand it or you need to think more deeply upon it. Perhaps one of my favorite illustrations of this comes from John Newton. John Newton is, of course, the man who wrote the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. He lived in the 1700s. He tells a story about a woman whose uh, large house had burned down, and she lost absolutely everything in this. But he says this woman was a Christian, and he says she was remarkably untroubled by the loss of all of her present possessions. And then he goes on to describe why this is the case. And he gives a little illustration. He says, Suppose a man, uh, this is in the 1700s, so work with this illustration. Suppose a man was going to the city of New York to receive a vast estate, a huge inheritance of millions and millions of dollars. And suppose as he was driving his carriage along, his carriage should suddenly break. And he can't use his carriage anymore, and so he is forced to walk the remaining last few miles to the city of New York to receive his great estate. Then he writes this. What a fool we should think him 
If we saw him wringing his hands and, and blubbering out all the remaining mile, oh, my carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. In other words, what he's saying is, if you're going to get a great estate, yeah, it's too bad you have to walk the few last miles. Oh, I'm sure it's going to be difficult, but what will keep you enduring, what will give you hope, is what you are going to attain. And this is the great Christian hope, that what is going to be revealed to us cannot even be compared to the sufferings of this present time. As another older author named Octavius Winslow puts it, One second of glory will extinguish a lifetime of suffering. What were long years of toil, of sickness, of battle with poverty and persecution and sorrow in every form and closing even with a martyr's death? What is all that? Weighed against one drop from the river of pleasure at Christ's right hand, with one breath of paradise, with one wave of heaven's glory, with one embrace of Jesus, with one sight of God. It is right here, though, when we are maybe at our highest point of hope, When our hearts are soaring with this is a glorious future hope, it is right here where some of the strongest attacks come against the Christian faith. For someone will say, it's all a fantasy. You Christians, this is the problem with religion. It casts a spell over all people so that they think about the future, the pie in the sky by and by thinking. It's a spell that's been cast over your mind. Oh yes, it will help you to endure the sufferings of this life. But it's a spell you're not seeing correctly. You need to live in the real world and stop living in a fairy tale. So right at the point of great hope, this attack comes in. But let me suggest this to you. You know, in all the old fairy stories, the old fairy tales, there's more than one kind of spell. Oh yeah, there's spells. Uh, If a spell gets cast on you, you begin to be deceived. You cannot see reality correctly and you fall under the spell and you're totally deluded all the time. That's very true. But there's always a second kind of spell. The second kind of spell is a spell that breaks the first kind of spell. The second kind of spell takes away the blindness from your eyes so you can see clearly, so you're no longer deluded, so you can correctly see reality. May I suggest to you that Christianity is actually the second form of spell? That right here in Romans 8 and verse 18, we don't have that first kind of spell that makes you delusional and can't see reality. It actually breaks the spell so that you can see reality correctly because Over the past hundred years or so, a great spell has been cast upon our Western world. It is a spell where so many people come to believe that this material universe is all that exists. And as a result, there is no hope for the material universe can offer you no hope. For everything, as we have said, is eventually moving down to total extinction, to total death. This is the spell that's been cast over our Western world. But right here in Romans chapter 8 and verse 18, the good news of what Jesus Christ has done and will do for us breaks the spell that has been over our Western world for so long. For the Bible declares that we live in this present time of suffering. Oh, we suffer. As we'll see next week, we groan in our bodies. Yet, as C.S. Lewis once wrote, the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor 
that it will not always be so. God sent his son into this world to die for our sin, to defeat the evil one, and to conquer death. Oh yes, that was a long time ago. And of course, it was so long ago now, 2,000 years, that people say, well, maybe God showed up 2,000 years ago, but it's been a long time. How can we even think he's going to show up? And so our Western world maybe falls under the spell that God will not do this kind of thing in the world again, that God will not show up in his world again. Oh, yes, the bells of God's clock tower have remained silent for 2,000 years. But don't fall under the spell to think that God does not exist because of that. For the day will come and will come suddenly when those bells will suddenly start ringing again. And when those bells ring, it will signal the end of this present age of suffering and it will immediately usher in a future age of glory. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a shout, with the trumpet call of God and with the voice of the archangel. And the dead in Christ, those who are believers in Jesus Christ, will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive on our left will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. On that day, Jesus comes to obliterate all viruses. He comes to destroy the evil one himself. He comes to renew his creation, not just back to the Garden of Eden, but to something even greater than the Garden of Eden. And on that day, God himself will come to dwell with his people on a renewed earth. Friends, this is the hope. This is the hope that can cause you to endure anything, even the worst of all possible sufferings in this world. So like Paul, let us think. Let us think deeply about time. We need to recognize where we are right now and recognize what will one day be so that we can say with Paul, I consider, I am under deep conviction that the sufferings of this present time they're not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great hope. Apart from you, there is no hope. But you, O oh God, have looked upon us with mercy. You, O oh God, have given us this great hope in Jesus Christ. Father, help us to sense a little bit more what it is. Help us to think and ponder more deeply on it, that our hearts will be filled with hope in order that we might be able to endure through all the sufferings of this present age. We give you thanks in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our hope. Amen.